All right, howlers, let's get howling. But first, a couple quick warnings. First warning, this podcast contains adult content. Don't be a pixie. Second warning, this podcast contains spoilers for the entire Red Rising saga. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Etsy. Email howlerpod at gmail.com. Visit us at www.howlerpod.com. And don't forget to rate and review us five stars only. If you don't give us five stars only, we will make you go to war against robots and only give you a mop. And now, Howler Pod. Dwell not on me, mortal. Nocturnal devils are afoot. Awake, arise, or be forever fallen. Hello, Howlers! Welcome to HowlerPod, the one and only podcast for all things Red Rising, where every episode we dive deep to break down, celebrate, and discuss all aspects of the fantastic Red Rising saga by Howler number one, Pierce Brown. Yes, quaint. I am your host, Ben Reinert. I am joined today, as always, by the amazing Aaron Ayers. Hello, Howlers! Aaron, what are we talking about today? Chapters 36 to 41 of Dark Age up until part three. Ooh. Part three is next. Spicy. Well, let's load up this star shell and shoot straight into our chapter summaries. Hopefully we don't shit all suits. Chapter 36, Lyria, victim. Lyria has been imprisoned by Victra in a cell similar to Victra's cell when the jackal captured her. There is sound and bright light torture as well as shifting gravity that makes it impossible to sleep. Lyria is ready to die and has been starving herself to death, but something inside her changes. She's been waiting around for others to save her for her entire life. No more. She makes the decision to take control of her life, and she begins eating again. One night, when she has tied herself to the air duct to sleep, she sees a scrap of cloth in the vent. It's a note from Volga, written in blood. At first, she is enraged, but then she remembers Volga's sad eyes. She decides to write a reply. Oh, poor Volga. <laughs> sad eyes. I like that. Her sad eyes. <laughs> Chapter 37, Ephraim, Heart of Venus. Pax, Electra, and Ephraim see bright flashes of light out their balcony. Has Mercury fallen? They are summoned by Sephi. The three then watch as Sephi's men brutally butcher one of her pinks after she found out he was a spy an alleged spy, and there was no trial. She tells them about what happened on Luna and then that the Sovereign is dead. Pax flees the room and Electra follows. Then Sefi shows Ephraim her plan to take the mines and tells him his Scoogie will be the leading force. Chapter 38, Lysander at the Horizon. Lysander is still in super bad shape. He's walking along with Cicero and Calendora through the desert. They break for water, but freeze when Cicero spots a hydra burrow. Hydras are carved beasties that could kill a full-on sunbled. They silently escape from the burrow and walk on. Shortly after, they see a herd of sunbloods fleeing a sandstorm. The group takes off, but Lysander and the greys cannot keep up. He pushes Kalandora forward, telling her to leave him, and he searches for another means of escape. He runs back toward the hydra burrow, and dives inside just in time. Chapter 39, Lysander. The mind's eye. We get to see it. Lysander hangs out in the burrow. Hangs out as in like (laughs) he's terrified because he's about to get eaten. He hangs out with the Hydra while the storm passes. It's super intense and stressful, but luckily the Hydra has recently eaten, so it doesn't really want to eat more. You know, when you like, eat all your chips at a Mexican restaurant and then your food comes and you really just don't even mm. want it. That's basically what the Hydra is saying. That's He's like, I just had chips and salsa and now you show up? That I don't need this chimichanga. <laughs> I'm already full. So he leaves the burrow and heads back to the down ship where the rest of the group had hidden during the sandstorm. He finds that they have been captured by the rising also allegedly, but they're gone. He's all alone and about to totally give up when a voice starts to speak to him. 
A man in a ghost cloak with a helmet in the shape of a minotaur horns warns him that devils are afoot and coming for Lysander. He has been following Lysander for four days, but won't help him unless Lysander shows him the mind's eye. Just then, devils arrive. It is Seneca, Cern, and some more of Ajax's goons. They have tracked Lysander's implant and are looking to finish the job so he is out of Ajax's way once and for all. Because he has some, like, boyhood grudge, which is so petty. Lysander uses a flash bang grenade type thing to blind everyone including himself and then he slips into the mind's eye using his heightened senses to take everybody out he kills them all expertly including Seneca but is wounded in the process Apple then appears and offers an alliance Lysander would only need to teach him the secrets of the mind's eye Lysander refuses and with a new sense of purpose and determination continues to walk north through the desert Apple lets him know. Apple lets him know that he will be watching. What's the Clay Aiken song? If I were invisible, I would just watch you in your room. <laughs> that plays as Lysander walks away. <laughs> <laughs> it's the only Clay Aiken song I know, and it's just so creepy. Write that down for the musical. It's in my head. <laughs> okay. Always. <laughs> <laughs> Chapter 40, Ephraim, Kyrdekan. Pax and Ephraim chill and share a burner for the first time. He's like 11, giving cigarettes to kids. Yeah, what a badass. <laughs> so Ephraim has just submitted his plan for attacking Samaria and like how to use the Skugi to infiltrate the defenses. They chat and they talk about all sorts of life stuff. Ephraim realizes that he genuinely cares about Pax and wants to see him make it through all this shit. Osgard comes up and tells Ephraim he is invited to the Kyrdekan. Safi has chosen his plan to attack Samaria over the plan of Valdir. Ephraim is like, what is Kyrdekan? Valdir's like, I'm the prom king, <laughs> not you. You're new to this school. I'm popular. Uh, Pax explains what the Kyrdekan is, and he gives Ephraim some advice for making it through. Basically, it's like an obsidian war ritual that they do before important battles. He is one of the few non-Obsidians to ever be invited inside. Ephraim and Osgard arrive and the ritual begins. Sefi splits an ox's head in half with her axe just to start things off. Pretty <laughs> badass. That's pretty intense. Uh, then they like open up the body and they burn it as like a sacrificial offering. Then all of the Obsidians that are present they start making offerings to this burning ox. They're basically like making bets on their honor by offering up things like their braids or some treasures or stuff like that. Uh, all of the male obsidians, including Valdir, only offer a single torque, which is seen as an insult because it is the least they can offer. They do not believe in the plan. Ephraim is like, you don't believe in my plan? I'm the best freelancer around. Watch this. And then he proceeds to cut his hand and make a blood offering within the ribs of the ox, something that Pax explicitly told him not to do because it means if his plans fails, he will be killed by the obsidian in ritual homicide. Sefi likes Ephraim's moxie. She's like, uh, I like what you're up to there. And she like cuts off a chunk of her arm and then... <laughs> throws it in the ox, and she offers her blood as well. And she's also, like, staring Valdir in the face the entire time. And she's also rotting, <laughs> so don't share that knife, anybody. <laughs> Chapter 41, Ephraim, Obsidian Rising. Ephraim hangs with Osgard as the Obsidian prepared to launch their attack on Samaria. Ephraim is worried his Skoogie aren't ready to execute his plan, and if they aren't, he dies and Sefi dies. Ephraim decides to munch on a few of Osgard's walnuts while he's waiting for the attack to launch. Osgard sees that he's eaten them too late, and he's like, oh shit, bro. And Ephraim's like, what? They're just walnuts. <laughs> and Osgard's like, nah, those are spirit berries. And Ephraim's like, holy shit, but it's time for the attack to start, and the train has already left the station, so Ephraim has to ride this trip. Stay above the high. The obsidians gather and start chanting. 
Ephraim tries to put on some armor, but he can't find any that fits because he's a small little gray and they're all obsidians. He is able to strap on some big grav boots that strap around like his calves up top. And uh, he finds a rifle, quote unquote. He and Osgard watch from the ship as the Skoogie successfully execute Ephraim's plan to take down the air defenses and the rest of the obsidian launch from the ship to invade the mines. Osgard tells Ephraim he's going to join and tells Ephraim to stay, but Ephraim has already jumped into the air, <laughs> and Osgard's like, fuck. <laughs> Ephraim's super pumped, and he shoots uh, ahead. He has no armor on, and he has his rifle and some grav boots. <laughs> he speeds ahead of the vanguard and passes Sefi, who was in front, and lands first at the mine. He sees Quicksilver's hunter-killer drones up ahead and points his rifle to shoot them down. He pulls the trigger and realizes he doesn't have a rifle. He has a mop. Just then, Valdir and Sefi land, and everything goes mad. All right, that's what happened in this week's chapters. Let's talk about the theme that ties them all together. Aaron, what's this week's theme? Finding purpose and conviction. Wow. That sounds like a, a noble theme this week. It's better than rock bottom. <laughs> it's much better than rock bottom. I was actually like smiling and laughing. <laughs> I didn't feel like everything was going to shit. I actually felt pretty good this week. That's mostly thanks to Ephraim, let's be honest. A hundred percent. Yeah. So in these chapters, we have a lot of our main characters are kind of finding their new purpose and conviction for what they're going to do moving forward within the story. So let's start with Lyria. Yes. Lyria is in this cell. She is laying there starving to death. She hasn't eaten in, she doesn't even know how long. She's like basically starving herself, right? She, yeah. They're giving her, She's she has access to water and like some bland nutrient rich food that tastes like shit but she's choosing just to let herself die because she is depressed and she's in a cell where she can't sleep and she's probably going a little crazy so in Lyria's first chapter that's where we find her but um through this chapter she decides she wants to live so the first quote is Lyria uh talking about like her pre-rising life and how that was for her. She says, uh, that world at least made sense before we were told it didn't. It had rhythm, I felt. It had family I loved. We had purpose that I understood. Now that world's gone, not just for me, for everyone. So this, I think, is a sentiment many Reds felt when they were liberated from the mines because they were liberated, but then... They were just in like refugee camps mm -hmm. with no purpose, uh, without the same care that they had in the mines. And then also they're being hunted by the, the red hand. Yeah, they're trying to figure out what to live for. Um, and our next quote is just her kind of thinking about her own story. She's stuck in the cell here and she's just kind of looking back towards her past. And she said, here's little Lyria. She watched herself be freed. She watched herself put in a camp. Others watched her complain. She watched her family die. She watched big bad Hyperion chew her up and spit her out. She watched as she decayed in her cell. Is that all I am? A watcher? A victim? Disgust seeps up through the cracks in the bottom of my heart. So it's interesting that she says all this because we thought... I know. I was thinking the same thing. Like as readers, that was kind of our impression of Lyria. Right. Like she's just a whiner. <laughs> yeah. That's why a lot of people didn't like her. I think. Right. But it's it's good she's got a lot of self reflection here. Mm-hmm. Um, just takes a little bit of light torture. Just a little bit of <laughs> literally light <laughs> torture and sound. Now she sees that while. She had reason to complain, obviously, even before her family was murdered. Um, she still sees herself back then as someone who's just waiting and not taking any control of her situation. Right. And that obviously 
fills her with disgust. And this is when she decides to not be that person anymore. Yep. And then uh, she's here. She's talking about Darrow. She says, I blamed him for taking my brothers, for leaving us mired in the camp for all that had gone wrong. But one person couldn't do all that. He freed us. And then we stayed in the camp and waited for him to do all the rest. Waiting, waiting, waiting while the tales that made us big began to make us feel small because we didn't make the choice like those brave boys and girls did. We didn't choose to fight. Well, fuck me if I'm going to wait any longer. Survival is my fight. Here we go, Lyria. Let's go. Fucking go. (laughs) She's getting pumped up for the big game. I know. I thought that was a great speech. I love the line that uh, she says. She says, waiting while all the tales that made us big began to make us feel small. I feel like that's a really great line uh, from Pierce. But that just uh, illustrates like this change within Lyria right now. She's let everybody else kind of determine her future and has been watching everything happening to her over these last few months. And like we saw a little bit of spark of this when she took control and like she told Kavax that she wanted to work for him, you know, she like went out and got his attention. So we saw a little spark of that. She's like, you're not going to leave me and Liam behind. Like you're going to take us on. But then she kind of reverted back to who she was originally. And then now she's like, I'm going to take control again. And we kind of see this, especially once she gets the parasite uh, later on that she's Has really a little bit of power. Yeah. She's really able to, uh, assert herself and so that's awesome it's really cool to see Lyria growing in that way this is like just a, a really great development for her character I feel like I liked it yeah. and come on Victra like why are you torturing her the same way Victra can just be a real bee sometimes let's be honest like and the whole thing with Victor coming in the cell and being like I know this isn't your fault but or, like, I know this wasn't your intention, but it is your fault. Right. Like, you brought unauthorized jewelry, basically, and you knew you weren't supposed to. Like, that's are a great you a point. fucking idiot? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, you're not wrong. <laughs> right. But does it, does it mean she needs to be tortured? I guess in Victor's eyes, it does. Right. Like, if you're a Julii or a Barky, you don't really operate in gray areas. You operate in, like, more black and white. Well, and Victra obviously knows that this cell can be triggered to, if you like do the light pattern correctly and push the right walls and stuff, it can be triggered into like just a nice room with a bed and right. without the Yeah, she torture. put her own kid in there, which is just kind of ridiculous. <laughs> which obviously we'll hear more about. But so Victra sees this as like, well, I, like you're torturing yourself because you're too yeah. dumb to figure it out. Yeah, that's a good point. That's kind of her attitude towards <laughs> life in it's general. Like, yeah, like she doesn't know that cells can change. Right. She's a red from the mines. <laughs> How would she know that? <laughs> Anyways, Lyria, good job. I'm yes. excited for your future. We're glad to see Lyria leveling up throughout this book. Honestly, for me personally, like, Lyria's chapters were some of my favorites in Dark Age, I thought. Oh, me too. Especially because we get Volga and Victra. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's talk about our next character that finds some purpose and conviction. Some porpoise. Some porpoise. <laughs> A marine animal. So, Sefi is talking to Ephraim here, and she is talking to him about the plans to take Samaria. And Ephraim's, like, challenging her on it. He says, you are going to start another war, basically. She says, no, I want to end war. The Republic breaks under its own weight. Obsidian must not. These are the schematics for helium mines of Samaria. I was hesitant to act when Virginia sat upon the morning chair. Now, no precautions, no hesitation. We strike. Helium is blood of empires. Mr. Horn, master it. Master destiny, and I will master our destiny. In one week's time, we take mines of Samaria and the continent as our homeland. So this is Sefi's purpose, which means it's the obsidian's purpose. Right. Because they all follow her. She's also just like bluntly told Pax and Electra like Mustang's dead. And then... Well, she kind of... She says Mustang's dead, and then she goes on she to kinda be... kind of like, like walks it back a little yeah, bit. Yeah, she's like, if she isn't dead... Yeah. 
like she will be basically. Yeah. But yeah, Sefi, as much as it's like annoying that she's fucking Virginia over at the same time, like she's trying to set up a future for her obsidians especially knowing that she might not be there. Yes, like you said, as much as we want to be mad at Sefi for like abandoning the rising, we can see where this is coming from and I can totally understand her position like the obsidians they bore the weight of the rising. They they were largely powering it um with their the, combat the worst, skills. The worst deaths. Yeah. Especially in the last rain. Right. And then then um, they're basically given nothing. They were given like rocky outcrops on Earth or something like that. And so um, now she's like taking control. She has to think about the Obsidian people and their future, um, not necessarily the Republic. And especially at a time like this when the Republic is breaking, fracturing, um, they've got to strike. And so she's found the purpose uh, for her people and what they're going to do moving forward. And that's just kind of what that quote illustrates there. That's Sefi. Who else is next? Who has purpose? Our man Lysander walking through the desert. This he is has had quite the walk. Right. This is really, this is where we see Lysander like change completely in like these two chapters pretty much. Yeah. Lysander, um, he's gone through a lot of trials, including Melty face. Yeah, he's survived the war, but now he's got to make it out. And he's like at the point where he's ready to give in and just say, all right, fuck it. I'm, I'm done with this. I'm not who I thought I was. His quote is literally, I believed the myth of war. Worse, I thought myself special, immune to the horrors lesser men face. Diomedes was right. All men are tiny before the storm. There is nothing but pain from my ruined face and deep, indescribable exhaustion. Serafina is dead. The alliance may be broken because of it. My praetorians rotting are captured. The tears sting my wounds as I weep. Why did I betray Cassius? Yeah, why? Yeah, yeah. Hey, <laughs> let's go back to that. <laughs> For this, why did I return to this horrible place? My hopes of united gold, of peace, now seem so laughable. Not only did I overestimate my own importance, I underestimated the scope of war. There is no escape from this. It will eat us all. Yeah, he's in a bad place. He's in excruciating pain. They're running out of water. Everyone's like dying off. They're still walking on. This is actually like a really self-aware quote from Lysander here. Like, Well, all I feel like all of his introspective yeah. thoughts that we read are very self-aware. Right. He just reasons differently than we want. he doesn't he doesn't reason out of these self-aware thoughts in like a Darrow way. Yeah. He reasons out of them. I mean, he's got Octavia in him. Yeah. And, you know, his abusive childhood. Ultimately, it all comes back to he believes in like the the higher the mission, yeah, the higher mission of gold to like shepherd humanity forward. Yeah, he believes that gold is, is the only way. Is the only way. Yeah. So then that's when he's in a bad place. Then of course he has to fight Seneca and his men and this is during the Mind's Eye fight where he like kills everybody and it's super badass. Right after that fight, this is when he kind of changes from that previous quote that we mm -hmm. just read. He says, I may not be what I thought I was. This world itself may just be a maze without a center, but I will not wait to die. I will not wait to be bridled by another. I will go forward as I see fit. So this is after he's chosen to not give in to Apollonius's offer right. of trading the mind's eye for life, basically. Yeah. And he's walking on no grav boots Still no water, probably. Did he get water from the dead soldiers? He might have. He did, like, pillage their bodies. Right, but so Apple took away the grav boots. Yeah. So, yeah, this is where he finds his conviction and purpose, which, kind of like Lyria, is just taking control of living, not mm -hmm. waiting to die, mm -hmm. and, like, moving forward. Right. And that's it. I... I like really love this exchange that Apple and Lysander have like right after the fight. Apple's basically like 
you were just ready to die like five minutes ago. And Lysander's like, that was five minutes ago. He's like, is Seneca <laughs> the same man? Yeah. <laughs> Obviously not. He's got no feet and he's dead. At the risk of like being hated on, I actually like really enjoyed this, these couple chapters from Lysander. Um, and oh, me too. I don't think people who call Lysander a space racist, I think they still enjoy his chapters and enjoy Lysander part of the time. But, you know, he obviously betrayed Cassius and then he's going to fuck Darrow over, too. Right. I think so the reason we can't like root for him. Right. I think the reason we like hate him so much is because we feel like we can see that there are good qualities within him that we want to latch on to embrace. Yeah. But he won't embrace them. And ultimately, it's like the things that he finds important are like you know, the opposite of Darrow, basically. It, it definitely reminds me of Roke. Yeah. Where we loved Roke forever. Mm-hmm. But then in the end, he fought for the society. So, like, we're already obviously on a side. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, therefore, we cannot be on Roke or Lysander's side. Mm-hmm. Yep. And this final quote from Lysander is just like the very end of his chapter when he is... Um, found his purpose, his conviction to live, and um, he's got a new mission now. He says, I walk north blind, but blinded no more, uncertain of where I go, but certain of one thing. Ajax abandoned me to the enemy. He tried to kill me. Darrow tried to kill me. Seneca tried to kill me. The desert tried to kill me, but I am still here. Pain the only proof I am not yet dead, be it one of anguish or joy, my life is mine. I have earned it back, and I have no intention of wasting it. That's a great fucking paragraph from Pierce. I'm sorry. It's a great quote. Yeah. <laughs> you better not waste your life, dude. You better you better turn your life around. <laughs> I'm not impressed by the end of this book. And still, I just like this is. I I know I keep harping on this, but Lysander's not a pixie. I mean, he. I love no, to well call. Now, I love to call him a pixie, but like. The fact that he is able to survive all this he stuff. He was literally a pixie, though, like, basically before this chapter. Like Seneca says, I thought you were a pixie. I thought you were a pixie. <laughs> yeah. But in the way that, you know, they think, like, golds think about pixies. Yeah, they thought he was because they don't judge the right things. Yeah, and they also don't know that he's got secret ninja skills. It <laughs> can, true. like, memorize it's where everyone force. is. <laughs> he does have the force. So Lysander has a newfound purpose. Ephraim is up next. <laughs> Favorite chapters. Mm-hmm. Ephraim obviously um, is just surviving. He keeps just surviving. Mm-hmm. But now he's sober and he's thinking a little more clearly. And this is uh, when they're all taking their oaths. And most of them are taking the um, like shave your head oath or mm-hmm. the like you know, money oath or whatever. Yeah, the torque. The torques. And Pax has told Ephraim, do not let your blood go into the rib cage of this ox because it means you'll be murdered ritualistically. Basically, all the men, especially uh, Obsidians, are saying that Ephraim, they don't believe in him. They think Valdir gives this big speech about how he would follow a different gray but not Ephraim because he's a sleazeball, basically. Yeah, because he stole like Darrow's kid and right, and uh, he doesn't. He thinks he's lazy or like you know just surviving. He just doesn't believe in him. He yeah. doesn't believe in him. Yeah, he's not like a great warrior in their eyes. So <laughs> Ephraim, this is when he, it's both purpose and like pride. But he says, "You all know what I did. I stole these gold spawn twice." You just scraped us up like vultures, and you call me a parasite? I was a son of Ares when you were still in the Dark Age, shitheads. I hunted peerless while you were still serving them or pulling your people off the poles. But you call me a dog? Fair enough. Spit on my honor. I don't give a damn. But you don't ever, ever insult my work. I jab my hand against a fragment of ribcage bone. Bright blood leaks out of the meat of my palm. 
I hold it over the rib cage and I let it dribble down. The obsidians are stricken with confusion. Even Valdir looks like he swallowed a turd. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Ephraim is kind of a contradiction, and, and that's why I think we love him so much. Is I, I think he does find a lot of purpose and conviction in these chapters, especially around like protecting packs. Uh, but as soon as he, like you said, as soon as he's kind of insulted and his work is brought into question, he's like, I am Ephraim T. Horn. Like, I have pulled off some of the best heists around. Like, not to mention, I did, like, backflips <laughs> out of the balcony <laughs> yeah. and almost escaped. Yeah. So when he's challenged, he's found a new purpose at that point. And it's, like, to prove everyone wrong, he's always got to be that person. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, sup, bro? What's <laughs> yeah. up? What's up? Let's go. And the best part about it is he backs it up a lot of the time. Like, he he knows he's good. And he flies ahead with a mop right. on spirit fairies. And then our last quote is from Sefi. She sees Ephraim's conviction, purpose, and she also wants to join in. She already has this plan in place. She makes this decision to go with Ephraim's plan over her lover's plan, which is crazy, first her of all. Her cheating man. Yeah, <laughs> that's probably why she's staring at him so much throughout it. She's like, I know what you did. <laughs> yeah. But she decides to go all in here, too, and she puts her life on the line. The quote is, the obsidian's quiet as Sefi walks to the ribcage. She plays with her long hair, then gives me a sinister smile and very casually draws a dagger to slice a chunk of flesh from her left forearm to toss into the ribs and match my wager. When she speaks, she does so to Valdir in common. My way in victory, my head in defeat. Nice. Mm. And she's also showing here that she believes in the plan and mm -hmm. in Ephraim. And for like a change in the obsidians once and for all. Right. Not yeah. going, you know, balls to the wall, mm -hmm. guns blazing, but being uh, more tactical and smarter yep. and not just like trusting in Valhalla to lead them. Great point. Yeah. That's exactly what she's going for. Good job, everyone. We found our purpose. All right, that's this week's theme of finding purpose and conviction. I hope you all are finding purpose and conviction in your own lives. Let's move on to our next segment. Who died today? Aaron, who died? Who died? Oh, I was thinking of a song for this segment, and the only song I can think of is from the musical Spamalot. I'm not dead yet. No, I'm not dead yet. But it doesn't make sense because they are dead. They are dead. So, uh, first off, we have Seneca and his goons. Goons. He died. Like, and, a, little, uh, like a little pixie bitch. He, uh, he was killed by what he thought was a pixie. And it was a great fight. And I think, you know, Darrow does this too. The whole, like, oh, I'm not going to do the dishonorable thing with the blaster. What was it? The, the pulse, pulse rifle. Pulse fist. fist. Yeah. I'm not going to do the dishonorable thing with the pulse fist. I'm going to use my razor. And it's like, fucking shoot him with a pulse Just fist. Just use the pulse fist. <laughs> and obviously, Lysander learns this lesson uh, when he sees Alexander. Yep. Yeah. And he paid for it this time because he got stabbed in the hip. Now he's like an old man with a hip injury. But apparently he's okay. Uh, okay. Who's next? Rolo with the goatee. Hmm. He was the arch governor of Mars, and when the coup started, when the sovereign fell, he was assassinated. By his, like, manservant. I guess. Butler is what it said. We heard about it through Sefi. That's unfortunate. Now Severo doesn't have any competition. Pour one out for Rolo. He was a cool red. And lastly? Amel. Mm. Amel was set up by fucking Xenophon. We'll talk about it. In the Prime 5, I think. Okay. So what is our Prime 5? It is five of our favorite insights and observations from this week's chapters. Let's get into that first one. So we've got Amel the Pink. He was um, liberated from a gold from by Sefi, and he was a loyal servant. and For years. For years, and Valdir vouched for him. But all of a sudden, he gets 
hacked to pieces. Mm. Why? Why did he get hacked to pieces? Very violently, too. That was tough. It was, uh, yeah, and they let the 11-year-olds watch. Also weird. Yeah, that, just think about that entire scene right there. It's like, Steffi's like, your parents are dead. We're going to chop this pink up <laughs> right here in front of you. What's and then that? burn him, I think, also. Yeah, they threw him in the fire. Tough. Anyway, we know now that this was all just Xenophon. Yeah, they are the traitor, but somehow they're like the most trusted advisor. Mm-hmm. So even Valdir, who was vouching for Amel, mm-hmm. was like, oh, if Xenophon said it, like I trust them fully. So I guess he was a traitor. Yep. So this also establishes a direct connection between society and the syndicate and what they were doing. So yep. we have Atlas here. The He's the one. is everywhere. Yep, Atlas is the one that's having these deep space transmissions with Xenophon. They also talked about poison on Sefi's favorite wine. And we know that Sefi is poisoned. Poisoned already. Already and has the black glove on to cover her like dying flesh, basically. Yeah, her like yellow rotting flesh. Also, this is kind of a similar gambit to what Darrow tried to pull on Adrius Jackal back in the day where he set up his head of security as like the Sons of Ares sympathizer or whatever, but it didn't work out. Yeah, uh, and then he got put in the box. Didn't work. Did not work. What's next up on the Prime 5? So uh, we have another uh, child genius in Pax, of course. The other one being Lysander with, you know, the great memory. Pax also has a great memory, and he informs us about a bunch of history on the Dark Revolt and, like, the timeline. And he, he fully explains what happens with Bolsung Fa, why they have red skin, and also saying that the, like, pirates, basically, the cannibals... Eskimani, mm-hmm. thank mm-hmm. you. The Eskimani are, he thinks, allied with Volsung Fa. So he really lays out all this history for us and catches us up before we meet Volsung Fa. Yeah, so we get basically just a really big info dump here from Pax. He explains that the Dark Revolt happened, like, 500 years ago. The Obsidians rose up against the Golds, one thing that I found really interesting was that like Ephraim's like thought this was like a rumor. Like he didn't even know it was a real thing. Volsung Fa? Um, just like the Dark Revolt in the first place. Oh. Because it was just like a rumor within the Grey Legions until the Rising happened. And then they published all the information about what it was. And we learned that um, like it didn't used to be a matriarchy. It was a patriarchy. Yeah. So there's a, a lot of things. So first of all, like Obsidian society was originally based on Mongols, not Norse mythology. So they were Mongols was like Attila the Hun, basically. It was a patriarchal society. All father became all mother. So when they switched it over, they switched everything over to Norse mythology. They switched it into a matriarchal society. And then they changed the language and all that type of stuff. And then... He talks about Volsung Fa and its connection to the Askamani. He talks about the Askamani pirates that came off the ice. That's what we've talked about previously. So these are freed obsidians in the last 10 years that are kind of pirating the asteroid belt. And this is who Cassius and Lysander ran into. Right. And there's a separate group that was way out in like deep space. The Kuiper belt is beyond Pluto, basically. So that's like outside of our known solar system right now. And it's much larger, and they're basically hanging out there. He also says that they have carvers with them and that they were possibly genetically sculpted with a bacterium that makes them highly resistant to deep space radiation, vacuum, dehydration, and cold. Turns their skin red. They're red. Yep. And we see them on Victor's ship. Mm -hmm. And then we learn about Atlas being the person that was sent out to take care of these like red Athkamani is kind of what we'll call them. He sends a transmission back to Octavia and he's like, they're out here. We got really fucked up. Like all our ships are messed up. And they're red. Yeah. And they're monsters. 
And then she's like, don't talk to me ever again, <laughs> basically. And uh, she's like, don't don't send another transmission until this is taken care of. And so she just leaves him for dead. It's basically a death sentence at that point. But then he comes back. And so then the rumors start that a outsider, Volsung Fa, has taken control of these red obsidian Askamani things. We get multiple mentions in like previous chapters of Pale Horse. There's like a lot of people are bringing it up. I think he's been mentioned three times at this point. I've been keeping track. Pax mentions him at one point. Um, Atlas mentions him, I think, at one point. So Pierce is introducing us to Pale Horse, who ends up becoming Volsung Fa. So we're getting all these seeds about how Atlas initially went out to fight the Askamani. And somehow befriended them. Sounds like he then sent basically his best guy Oh, he inside. sent Volsung Fall out? Yeah, because Volsung, like, cause Pale Horse was Atlas's like best obsidian. Oh, okay, his stained. Yeah, and he sent him kind of into the Askamani, and then he became Volsung Fall as a result of that. Damn. And supposedly Pale Horse is Ragnar's dad. Supposedly. Supposedly. Well, damn, Pax, thanks for the lesson. He also gives the information about how they invade ships right and like breaching the hole yeah and then we of course see that with victor's ship right so we see that whole thing go down with victor yeah. a couple chapters later it's here. just another pure sprinkle <laughs> like here here's a little tidbit yeah. get ready i'm about to drop the real thing on your yep. ass we need to remember this next time we i don't know how it works he every sprinkles single time so much in though that you it's true like, like, you can't, like, know which one of these sprinkles is going to actually come to fruition to one of our beloved characters. Yeah, that's very true. His world building is top notch. Top notch. Okay, what's next on the Prime 5? This one's mine. There's a couple Star Wars references in these chapters that are fun. Star Wars. Pew, so pew, pew. We get one from Pax. He says, next time I'll tell you the tale of Sophocles the clone, a creature so noble and so wise he learned to cheat death. So that's a Revenge of the Sith. Shout out. How so? Emperor Palpatine's talking to Anakin. He's like, I'll tell you the tale of Darth Plagueis the Wise, a Sith Lord so powerful and uh, wise that he learned to cheat death. It's like a, a shout out to that. Oh, it's like a direct quote, but with different names? Pretty much. He says create life, I think, the other in, in Star Wars, but it's okay. like the same kind of diction. and Rhythm. Yep. Mm-hmm. And then uh, there's one other one with Ephraim and Osgard. Uh, Ephraim says, no offense, but I find your faith a little disturbing, which is a play on Darth Vader saying, I find your lack of faith disturbing. So the opposite. Mm-hmm. Nice. Mm-hmm. Do you think Pierce Brown knows what Star Wars is? Yeah, I think he's into it. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> These aren't like act- accidental exact references. Mm. No, the definitely <laughs> <not>. <laughs> Nice. Good job, Ben. Always here for the Star Wars. That's for my Star Wars nerds out there. I got you guys. Always. Star Wars factoids. Some great Lysander Mind's Eye stuff is in here. Next up on the Prime 5. So as we reread Iron Gold and Dark Age, we picked out a lot more Mind's Eye references And like we said, Pierce is sprinkling it in before he drops it on us. So this is where the boom goes the dynamite. This is where Pierce really drops it on us. And then Apple, in his little speech, gives us even more um, evidence, I guess, that Lysander truly is the only one who knows the mind's eye, which is why he's following him and trying to basically trick him into giving it to him. Right. Uh, the exact quote from Apollonius is uh, six years I have collated the knowledge to become the mightiest of mortal vessels, yet one morsel still eludes my voluminous mind, hidden in no fury, which is a reference to the Furies. The Furies. So that means that Aja, Moira, Atlant- Atalantia all don't have mind's eye. It says no books, trusted to no digital void. So that would probably rule out her vault as well, the crescent vault or whatever. At least as far as Apple knows. Yeah. He said, it lingers yet this knowledge in one sepulcher. 
four days I have followed. Four days you have denied me my quest. I must know the mind's eye. Show it to me or perish. Lysander's then like, you just told me I'm the only one who knows it. Therefore, I know you're not going to kill me. Right. (laughs) Nice try, buddy. Uh, And then Lysander uses it. And then Apollonius says, uh, so it is true. It's real. Because Atalantia told me it's not real. So I think that's just like a major clue that Lysander's really the only person that knows this. And you think like if Aja really knew it, she could have taken down Darrow and Probably. Cassius and Mustang. Yeah. And Severo. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So it, it it's really cool to see it come to fruition. And then um, as much as we hope Pax might have a little bit of it, this is kind of proof, I guess, that Lysander is the only one holding it. I would say it's definitely just like something that Octavia held on to herself that she taught Lysander, and that's it. Also, why isn't Octavia like blinding everyone and spinning around killing in, and instead getting like punctured in the gut? Did you kind of talk about that? A really? Bit. Yeah, he does kind of talk about it a little bit. Like why she didn't use it when she died? It made her a great fighter, but there's more to it than that, basically. And she was like a hundred. She was also really old, fifty yeah. or something. And Daryl caught her by surprise, like. Right. Yeah. Like surprise! I'm not in handcuffs, and Cassius. And she wasn't using the mind's eye at that time. Right, right, right. Yeah. So yeah, lots of cool mind's eye stuff. Mm-hmm. We and by the way, I like fully hated it my first read, but now that I knew it was coming. I was like, this is cool. I it's cool and it's necessary. Right. Because, like, Lysander needed something. Uh, he was dying in the desert. I agree. And I also like that it's not something he can sustain because he even talked about if he went into the mind's eye, he would waste away. I think you just made a really great point. Like, Lysander needs something that makes him formidable, especially going up against Darrow. Um, if this is it, like, I'm down. Like, I thought it was really cool, especially this time around. So I didn't mind it the first time as much as everybody else. I kind of understood why people didn't like it. but Well, yeah, um, you were always on board. I yeah. was not on board. I thought this was a really cool chapter. Last item on the Prime 5 list, we get two things here from Lysander. He picks up his poet quoting habit from Calendora. In these nice. chapters, yes, he quotes poetry at Seneca after he. Well, that's like him. a typical gold. When you're dying, you get to hear your favorite poet. No, but that's like Calendora is reciting poetry in the desert, and then Lysander's like, "Why are you doing that?" And she's like, "Everyone should hear some poetry before they die," and so that's why he starts doing it. Mm. And then he also gets his idea for his dramatic charge there at the end uh, at Darrow from Apollonius uh, because Apollonius tells him even if you survive this walk you can never best Darrow if if that is your intent he would climb up your blade to chew upon your jugular to best a living god it is not enough to survive nor to eat of the ambrosia of conquest who would follow a churlish princeling over that slave made war after all you have no sense of theater theater let's bring in some horses so that's like what inspires lysander to not only make the horse charge originally but also second charge at darrow where he like calls him out and they do that like blade shattering and so it's like he's trying to inspire people at that point he realized he gets that idea from apollonius right here right two things his quoting poetry at alex which we just fucking hate that's like probably the one of the worst moments of the book yeah, don't don't be uh, confused here and think that we like Lysander. No, I just think these are a good couple chapters for him. Yeah, he's going to like really fuck up here. He's gonna hit <laughs> rock bottom <laughs> for us. Yeah. as soon as he pulls that trigger. Yeah, so he gets that really annoying habit of like asking Alex who his favorite poet is, and then also that idea to charge Darrow, call him out, and charge Darrow at the very end. Both come from these chapters, which is interesting. I thought. Nice. Okay, that's our Prime 5. Now that we've finished our Prime 5, it's time to name our Primus of the Week, where we choose the one character who conquered our Proctors of Plot and rose above the rest. Our Primus of the Week is... Uh, Let me see. Is Ephraim involved? 
It's Ephraim. <laughs> Ephraim's just going to win as much as possible. <laughs> sorry, we're not sorry. So why did Ephraim win? Uh, his plan worked to perfection. His plan worked, so he's not going to be ritually murdered. Right. Sefi won't either. And also, he went on a fabulous spiritberry trip. And we are all yeah, for drug trips drugs. here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he not only did drugs, he like flew. Can you imagine being on a trip and flying in grav boots with no armor and just a mop and like taking down, like facing down some robots? Talk about riding the high. Riding that high. That's pretty <laughs> awesome. And obviously, like the only reason he survived was because he was not holding a weapon. Also and the robots didn't deem him a threat. <laughs> right. also but he, it's great. Also, he just has some, I mean, really great lines. Oh, you, of course. He's got the best <laughs> yeah. lines. He's just the best written character. You love drugs. You love drugs. He's like trying he's to like give like himself, himself up. <laughs> Remember how you were an addict? <laughs> and think about it. He's been sober now from Z, which means the spirit berries probably hit him like even harder. Right. Uh, one I really enjoyed that was just kind of a subtle one, but I love Ephraim's just deadpan is when Sefi is cutting, like she's swinging that axe down on the ox or whatever. So she's like split its head open with the axe and it says Sefi reaches into both sides of the split beast's head and rips out its tongue to show that it has been divided in half. Impossible precision. Like the obsidians are like all going crazy. He's just thinking to himself, seems excessive. that's a little much we could have uh i don't know slit the cow's throat yeah can we just take this down like 10 notches maybe (laughs) but she split the tongue in half which you know that's pretty dope that's a big axe oh yeah it's a long tongue stuff he's good cows and oxes have you know surprisingly long tongues congratulations ephraim i'm sure we'll see you again Okay, that brings us to the Howler voicemail. Favorite part of the show. Best part of the show. Okay, we've got a voicemail queued up from our friend Darcy. Hey, Ben and Aaron. It's Darcy Johnson calling. Hope all is well. While listening to the Dark Age recap y'all have been doing, it started to make me think about the plot armor that Darrow has. He's a hero, so of course he'll have high-tech pulse armor on against the story's assault on his character, but it begs the question given some of his hairy situations he has gotten into throughout the series. Just how thick is his plot armor and when is enough? If it is too thick, he is almost godlike at that point, and you know he would never die, removing some sense of worry for him and it's just another. Oh well, he'll be fine. The, sense of the, stuff. the scene for the Fear Knight is a good example. Yes, it would have been a little too soon for Darrow to die, he deserves a much better death. But any gold would have died in that situation. So, of course, Joe's rescue is coming. So that being said, do you think Pierce Brown will off Darrow in a savage way in book six, or will the hero rise above it all once more? Maybe a biased opinion, but if Darrow did happen to die, I don't think it would drop an iron rain, wiping out the entire series. It would be a traumatizing event for the reader, but considering how much the universe has evolved, and the story has progressed, I feel he has become just another cog in the ever-spinning wheel of events that are unfolding. Yes, he has the biggest role being the face of it all from the beginning, but the story is so much more than just Daryl fighting against the world now. After one, I've become a huge fan of all the other supporting characters and will continue to read the series and follow their stories. So to reiterate, what are your thoughts on Daryl's plot armor and how will it affect the series as it continues? Is it too strong that is leaving him nearly indestructible knowing he will continue to live? Or is Pierce Brown building up to eventually bring him to an end, sending a shockwave through the system? Anyways, looking forward to hearing more of your podcast. And uh, keep on howling, Howard. Oh, yes, Darcy. <laughs> Thank you for calling in. So, yeah, Ben, what do you think of Darrow's plot armor? I would agree with Darcy there, kind of where I think that Pierce is building up to something. And I think it's ultimately going to be Darrow sacrificing himself for the greater good. 
I think that's a horrible idea, and I think <laughs> that Darrow should never die, and I'm glad that he's still alive, and I won't say which series because of spoilers, but I was really into this, you know, teen fiction, I'll say, <laughs> where the main character dies at the end, and I was like, fuck this, I hate all of these books now. Like, I did not like it. I feel like Darcy made a bunch of great points there, though, like, this world is so much bigger than just Darrow now, and we have so many more characters that we care about. I'm almost okay with letting Darrow go at the end of this series because I know we're probably not going to come back to this story at this point. I don't think... I th- I mean, don't you think Darrow deserves to like live a little with his family? See, I think that is the point of the plot armor at this point. He is building towards something like a greater purpose for all this. And it is ultimately that Darrow has to make a choice that results in him losing his life to see this dream come to fruition. I just think that the thing people that the thing people don't like about plot armor is the same thing that I don't like about thinking the main character has to die at the end to like prove that he didn't have plot armor. I'd rather that we just all accept that main characters like in the Avengers can fucking live and they don't have to die at the end. But the main one did die at the end. Uh, Spoiler. (laughs) (laughs) That's fine. There's so many. I don't know. I wouldn't say that they were the main one. I mean, there's so many main ones. He's the one that started it all. They all have their own fucking movies. (laughs) Anyways. You're just thinking about Thor. I know you're thinking about (laughs) Thor. (laughs) I was not thinking about Thor. I was thinking like Samuel L. Jackson actually like started it and he didn't fucking die. So, you know, I don't know if that's true. But (laughs) it was Iron Man was the first one. I just think that if... If Daryl gets killed off, it's the same. It to me, that's the same type of like appeasing. I don't know some weird uh, notion that you know after sacrificing himself over and over, the minute he like succeeds, then he dies. I think that's bullshit. I think he should get to live with Virginia and Pax and be a dad and fucking live happily ever after. I think if done right, his death could be earned. It has to be earned. Like, and you I can't trust. Die. Pier- no, I'll be mad. I trust Pierce to do that. I don't think that he can just live happily ever after. Like Red Rising is not a happy, happily ever after type series to me. I don't know. I think that if we wanted to do happily ever after, we would never would have started these three books. <laughs> you know. I think that there are similar books that I will also not name because of spoilers that have let the main character live. And that's the ending. I prefer it. That's all I'm saying. Okay. And I get that. I think that with this second trilogy, happily ever after is probably not going to happen. I think he can survive it, but there has to be some kind of price. Like, like no arms. I don't know. It's <laughs> like, um, you don't get arms, Darrow. Uh, I know people didn't like the ending to Game of Thrones. And if you haven't watched TV series and plan to skip ahead like two minutes because I'm about to spoil it. But it has to be something similar to like Jon Snow's ending where it's not not necessarily like extremely happy. He didn't get everything, but it's not also him dying. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that would be. It can't just be like happily ever after skipping to the sunset. Yeah. Why not, Ben? <laughs> Why not? I just don't think that's the type of series we're reading here. I think it can be that, and I think it should be, and I think that you, you shouldn't have started the second trilogy. Then <laughs> you should have just stopped after Morningstar. I, I'm pretty sure all of this is your <laughs> fault because you're the one who told me to read these books. <laughs> so if it isn't a happy ending, I'm blaming you for my eternal sadness. Fair enough. Uh, thanks, Darcy, for starting a giant argument between it. <laughs> <laughs> Which will continue after this episode. So next up, uh, we have a uh, 
email. Yeah, let's uh, move on to Howler Q&A. We've got a nice DM here from our man, Deanie B. He's our meme queen. He's a.k.a. the meme lord. Oh, sorry. I'm meme queen. He's meme lord. Yeah. He sent me this great message, and it's not really a question, but there are a bunch of questions involved because him and his family had an entire like Red Rising meetup and discussion group. Which There's is like amazing. Ten of them. He sent me a picture of it and like an eleven point question uh, syllabus for <laughs> <laughs> the family meetup. First and of all, who here has family members? That like <laughs> the Red Rising series. I mean, my mom reads it, but we're not having discussion groups about my, it. My brother and my dad read it, but same. We're not having meetups. Yeah. So when this episode posts, I'll post the picture of the Dini family because I feel like they deserve some pub for how great this was. They also made like, I don't know, a 13 or 14 layer parfait, one for each of the colors, which was crazy, I thought, as well. They each had their own like parfait. Wait, so there's like black and orange? Yeah, I don't know what they did for each layer. I'd be but worried about dipping into I'll that. I'll show you the picture later. Nice. I'll post the picture of the Dini fam and their discussion points because there's some fun questions in there, too. Uh, but I thought that w- I just thought that was awesome. If Thanks, Dini B. Hey, way to have an entire family <laughs> of howlers. I know. He's That's just pretty dope. Putting us all to shame, the meme lord himself. Good job, Dini B, a.k.a. Brian. A.k.a. Meme Lord. Meme Lord. All right, you know what it's time for? What are we into this week? I'll go first. Aaron, go. <laughs> um, I'm into a game. It is a card game that you play with your friends. It's called You've Got Crabs. Oh, this is actually a fun game. So um, previously on the podcast, I recommended the game Exploding Kittens, which is still amazing. Um, But You've Got Crabs is from the creators of Exploding Kittens. So it also has hilarious artwork. And of course, you shout, You've Got Crabs at your friends. And basically, it's a team-based card game where you have to like, Give your teammate a secret signal if you have, um, like, if you have all four cards matching, you do, like, your, like, flaring your nose thing to your partner across the table, and then they have to shout, you've got crabs. And um, it's pretty fun. And it's it's actually easier than Exploding Kittens, so it might even be better for, like, younger audiences or drunk people. It's a good game. It's fun. Ben, what are you into this week? I'm into another movie, but not the actual movie yet because it hasn't come out. I'm into the trailer. You guys, if you have not watched the F9, Fast 9 trailer. Fast, Fast and Furious. For the Fast and Furious. The Fast Saga is what we're calling it now. Mm-hmm. F9 trailer. God, it's so fucking good. It just came out today. I mean, I'm just going to give you a quick list of my top five favorite things from the f9 trailer from the trailer yes jeez so dom aka vin diesel he no longer lives his his life a quarter mile at a time he's got a family now can you believe that dad he's a dad he doesn't live his life a quarter mile at a time anymore i'm not a big fan like you are salut la familia okay next charlize theron has a bowl cut great she's hot (laughs) wow it's a serious it's an actual bowl cut she's still hot though she looks great um third vin diesel and john cena you know john cena is yeah they're brothers in this movie great that's actually the most unbelievable thing that's ever (laughs) happened in In all in all of these movies (laughs) there's a lot of unbelievable (laughs) things that have happened that is the single most unbelievable thing fourth there's a, a car with a jet engine strapped to it that sounds awesome Let's do it. Yeah. Let's go to space. Fifth, I'm pretty sure, I've only seen it a couple times, but I'm pretty sure Dom, a.k.a. Vin Diesel, is standing on top of a car and then catches another entire car with his hands. Vin Diesel? Yeah. Not The Rock? Yeah, the Vin, Vin Diesel. I feel like only The Rock could actually do that. <laughs> they they picked the wrong. The way I'm not sure the physics on that one, but like a car like jumps up in the air and then like kind of corkscrews 
towards Vin Diesel, and he's standing on top of another car, and then it looks like he he actually catches that car with his hands, and this is the greatest movie franchise of all time. That's my statement. So, okay. (laughs) Ben made me go see (laughs) Fast and Furious 7, which was legit the first one that I ever saw. Yeah. And we were in the movie theater, (laughs) and it's full because it's like opening night. And we brought like five of our friends, and we're all sitting there, and everyone in the theater is silent except for Ben, (laughs) who is like screaming laughing (laughs) the entire movie, which at first was really embarrassing, but then quickly everyone in the theater started laughing at Ben because he was enjoying it so much. So... Ben, if you're g- if you're gonna see these terrible movies, they're great, actually. Best action movie franchise of all time. Then I recommend seeing them with Ben. <laughs> that's the only way you're gonna enjoy it. Bonus sixth thing on my list: Hans Beck, which is absolutely insane. He died in Fast Six, like for sure. They go get his body from Japan in Fast Seven. But now he's back alive. So it's just like. So that's just doesn't make any sense. These movies are the best. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you just described something that made the movie terrible and then concluded that it was the best. It's the best. All right. What's coming up next on Hallerpod? We are going into part three wow. of Dark Age, which is a whole nother part. Like, there's a whole other storyline here that we haven't oh, yeah. entered into. Yeah. It's chapters 42 to 46. Don't forget, Howlers, follow us on the social media at HowlerPod, H-O-W-L-E-R-P-O-D. We are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We have Etsy merchandise. We also... Uh, can be emailed at howlerpod at gmail.com or you can visit our website howlerpod.com and you'll find links to all of the things that I just mentioned. Don't forget to leave a voicemail. Call in. Let us hear your voice. 1-800-516-1540. Also, tell a friend about the books and then tell them about the podcast because we like new friends. Don't forget to rate and review us. Five stars only. If you don't give us five stars only, we will blind you and then use the mind's eye to cut both of your feet off before chopping your head off. Mm -hmm. All right. Thanks, Alice. Omnis Vir Lupus.